The Free for All Roundtable. Round one. Let's introduce the panel. Tim Hudak is here, former leader of the Ontario Conservatives. Laura Babcock, host of The O Show and with Power Group Communications. And Mark Warner is here, international trade lawyer. Good Wednesday morning to you all. Let's actually start with a guest we spoke with earlier on the show, and that is Michael Korn. He is a faith leader. Actually, many of you are familiar with him from back in the day as a broadcaster, but now he is an um He's an Anglican priest. I always have to remember the denomination because he's also the author of a book, Why Catholics Are Right, and then he walked away. But let's keep going. Michael Corrin is one of the signatories to a letter to the provincial government calling on the government not to go ahead with the new highway project, 413. When I asked him, aren't you kind of getting out of your lane? Here's what he had to say. And our lane is not just being in a church on a Sunday taking a service. Anyone who thinks that, and uh, doesn't understand what it is to be a priest. Uh, I spend a lot of my time, most of my time, in fact, dealing with people who can't uh, find a place to sleep for the night, who are fleeing uh, abuse at home, uh, self-harm, I mean, all sorts of pain and suffering and injustice. So that is our lane. And it's those people who have no connection to organized faith who will say things like, well, this has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with it. But it has everything to do with with, with everybody, because... Those of us who have any investment in the future, and I think that's all of us, must care about what will happen. And it's gone past the point of, well, it'll be okay. It won't be okay. We're seeing the results of climate change as we speak, and it's only going to get worse. Okay, Mark Warner, let me start with you. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. I guess the big question mark is how seriously do others take it? Yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of this format generally. Uh, sort of, you know, we've got 5,000 international trade lawyers who've signed in a position to say X or 10,000 doctors or whatever. And it seems like an awful lot of United Church people on this list. I didn't see a lot of, I didn't see any, frankly, from the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, which is the one true church, as you know. Um, so, like, what do we do with this thing? I don't know, John. It's interesting that they're having the title to their views. I think it would have been just as interesting if they just put their names to it. Um, I've never heard of the group Enviro Muslims or Green Umar before. Uh, maybe they are something worth following on Twitter. Um, so that's kind of all I really have to say about that. All right. Let me turn to the other person on the panel who probably knows Michael Corrin as well as I do, because that's where I met you, Laura Babcock. <laughs> yeah, way back in the day. You know, Michael, as always, uh, articulates the case well, not just for the engagement of faith leaders in broader issues about the future, uh, but specifically to climate change. I mean, right Right now we're looking at a storm in the U.S. that's starting off with tornadoes in Louisiana and you got people from Louisiana say, saying they've never seen anything like it. We know how devastated uh, our Atlantic islands got in the Fiona storm recently and we have a big storm that we're bracing again and severe weather frequent severe weather is part of climate change so is flooding and we know that one of the biggest issues right now is the downpours that are coming they affect insurance rates they affect all kinds of things to mitigate is not enough we cannot just go ahead and destroy wetlands we have to be more thoughtful even though when the green belt was created and tim has made the argument that there were some flaws in how it was designated back in the day we're not back in the day we are at a point now where all of us including faith leaders and forty thousand people who signed the letter on the 403 or 413 and and the thousands who are going out every weekend protesting the green belt and protesting Ford. We're at a point now, John, where we know that this is urgent. This isn't, you know, theoretical or ideological anymore. This is urgent and we have to protect our green space, point blank. Tim Hudak, let me ask you something. Um, Is this 
something that would even show up in the premier's morning briefing. The fact that, you know, and by the way, sir, there's a letter from 50 faith groups and faith leaders about the 413. Do we have him or is he uh, dropped off the line? Divine intervention, John. Oh, dear. I'll take his time. <laughs> now I hear the voice. Tim Hudak. Okay. Did you hear the well, question? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Maybe okay. with divine intervention. I said no. Um, <laughs> it, it likely would. Look, I, I um, you know, my capacity as leader of the opposition or to my time as an MPP, I'd, you'd receive all kinds of letters. And I will say, John, if I had letters from faith leaders, I, I would take them particularly uh, seriously, uh, especially if they're in areas of, of social justice and helping out the, the most vulnerable, right, where they really have a lot of strength. Here, would it get to the Premier's desk? No, Mr. Transportation, perhaps. And as Mark said, this isn't the collection of the highest hats uh, in uh, in faith-based services. But I, I do think um, they're they're out of uh, their lane here. This is not a well-researched uh, letter. It seems rather rather knee-jerk. I, I just don't believe that um, that a highway that will that is actually needed that will help you move faster. You know, less emissions coming out because they won't be caught in in jams uh, is going to have the cataclysmic impacts that they imply. This was a key election issue that people got behind it, and I think we should build that highway to get us moving around, build more homes, and get more jobs. Let's move to federal politics, and we'll deal with the ethics violations first, and then the possibility of an election second. A uh, federal cabinet minister was found guilty of an ethics violation. Her office, if not her hired a very, very good friend to do work on behalf of the government. It's just such an obvious violation. And Tim Hudak, I'll start with you. For me, this just makes me question her judgment. It's not the offense. It's the fact that it never occurred to her. It's pretty basic, right? It's very basic that you do not intervene uh, to use precious tax dollars uh, to to benefit a friend. Is it valid to say that you need a communication assistance during COVID? Absolutely. But every government knows, right, that you have a process to do so that is that is fair and arm's length and influence free. And that's kind of basic training when you get in the cabinet. Was this a huge amount of money, John, compared to other contracts? No. But the principle is important no matter what to spend. The right thing is to do is the minister actually Step down, I would say, over this. Learn her lesson, perform. She can come back. But this is basics when it comes to making this kind of error in judgment. Mark Warner, what do you say? Does she have to quit? No, you know, I have two perspectives on this. John. One is I'm, I'm not a huge fan of small scandals, small dollar scandals. I mean, there's a lot greater waste. And, and in fact, involving this woman from Alvaro, from her, her company, I think you could spend a lot of time just seeing how many government contracts she's got. And they've got a lot. So I never really understand what counts as a scandal in Canada, these what $10,000 contract. So it, it happened. It's stupid. It's dumb. But my goodness, I, I just don't know that... That's if I were looking for scandals involving Mary Ng of Markham, <laughs> with all the stuff that's going on in the papers right now uh, that people can read about, um, you know, involving interference in elections, and in looking at the, that company specifically, and where the person who comes from, who worked, I think, in the PMO, um, I wouldn't. I just, I just, my goodness, this, you, this, this is the scandal you get involving that those two. I, I just, I, I just, I don't get sometimes where we are in this country, what counts as a political scandal. The other piece of it, John, is as someone who was a legal director to a number of ministries, obviously I had to sign off and draft up uh, sole source contracts. So of course I saw a uh, lots of this sort of thing. Um, it's easy to engineer around these rules. So mm -hmm. it looks kind of sloppy to me, for the, particularly because they are low dollar value. But that what it does speak to perhaps is a climate in the government itself, where somebody would not even bother to be uh, to take care of 
crossing the T's and dotting the I's because it's these value contracts would be so easy to to get around the rules. Okay, listen, I want to move to uh, other issues. And so, Laura Babcock, I'll start with you. Thomas Mulcair writing a column where he thinks we're going to go to an election next year. Now, when we spoke with him, his timeline was possibly next fall. I find that a little bit more believable, but I certainly don't see an imminent election. Like, I don't think this Jugmeet Singh thing amounts to anything. I agree. And, you know, Jugmeet propped up the Liberals. We saw what happened when Andrea Horvath decided to prop up Kathleen Wynne. I don't think it puts the NDP in a strong position to say that they're leaders. They look as though they're more always going to, you know, always going to be in kind of the beta position. Uh, so it would be advantage Trudeau if he did call one. Polyev, of course, uh, is, you know, getting a lot of one-liners out there and he's having some success raising money, certainly. And there may be a giant conservative vote out there, but, you know, the longer that we watch Polyev, I think the more mistakes that he makes, I think the, the more people are starting to repudiate that kind of populism. Uh, so, you know, if there's an election, Trudeau calls it, he might work himself towards a majority. So, I, you know, I don't think there's much to this story. Okay, Tim Hudak, what do you see? No smoke, no smoke whatsoever. And I, I got a lot of respect for Thomas Mulcair, yeah. and I enjoy him on your show, but I, I just don't see it this time. Look, I, I've been in minority governments, and there are signals that you see. For example, if you're getting ready, you're out there recruiting candidates and announcing them. You're fundraising like crazy, and you've got a significant amount of funds in your bank. And you start talking about issues that you're going to drive in the campaign that you know your opponents can't go in that direction. I see none of those things coming from Jugmeet saying at this point in time. Is he doing the right thing by saying push for health care? Absolutely. Well, Trudeau responds well he has to there's tremendous momentum across the country for more investments in, in primary care and frontline care election john no way uh let's move on to new zealand coming up with a uh, zero tolerance on smoking policy effectively if you're born after 2009 you will not be able to buy cigarettes now i guess you could get somebody older to buy them for you um but uh, laura babcock i'll start with you on this one it's um, it's a radical policy, but at the same time, they're arguing this is a deadly product. We want to stamp it out. I absolutely love this. I love the leadership coming out of this country on a number of fronts, but the, they already have one of the lowest smoking rates in the world. And they are saying, you know what, we want to be smoke free by 2025. I mean, just let that kind of sink in. They're taking away 90% of the current nicotine vendors. They're saying, you know, you're born now, you'll never have an access to this poison, this highly addictive poison product. I, I mean, I think it, it makes sense. It's bold. It's courageous. They're going forward and they're going to save billions billions on the health care costs that are accrued when people pick up this deadly addictive poison as a habit. So it's smart economically, it's smart socially, uh, and kudos to them for showing real leadership. Mark Warner, you're the lawyer here. I realize this is New Zealand, but I thought if we tried <laughs> to emulate this policy, it would no doubt face a charter challenge because you're telling a certain category of people as defined by age that they're not allowed to buy a product. I didn't have a chance to read this article beforehand, so you know, to be honest with you, I, I, just, I just don't know the details. I, I think it would be hard to uh, hard sell in Canada, although, you know, there's, there's that famous Section One that sort of lets you do whatever whatever you want. Um, in Hades, <laughs> was there a cigar exemption? I mean, that's all the thing I was curious about. Is there anything that might apply to me? Was there a cigar exemption? Oh, are you a cigar smoker? <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> Mark and I be riding I in the streets if they tried that. Canada. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> exactly. I think that's where you get the lawyers upset. <laughs> okay. Tim Hudak, what do you make of the fact that apparently the numbers show that people who refuse to get vaccinated are much more likely to be involved in a traffic accident? 
<laughs> like wild. I, I I want to tip my hat to the the pollster that actually came up with this uh, this analysis. I I can't rule the two. Um, I I just going to say it's a it's a coincidence in the numbers of trick rather than the fact that uh, getting those uh, Pfizer shots on my arm has in any way made me a safer driver. Yeah, Laura Babcock. It seems to be the theory is it's not causality, but it's that you might have certain personality traits if you refuse to get vaccinated that could make you more likely to end up in an accident. Well, they had the theory, they theorized it, and then they looked at the stats and they seemed to have found some evidence that um, antisocial or risk-taking behaviors, it flows, doesn't it? And doesn't it kind of explain that when some of us were banging our heads against the wall, urging people to do the right thing and get vaccinated, and some of us compared it to, you know, you got to wear seatbelts to drive, you know, you should, you should have a vaccine to go in social settings during the height of a pandemic. That message wasn't really resonating, and perhaps this is why. They were already acclimatized to risk. They already um, felt that that was the way to live their life. Uh, and that's maybe why they call themselves the freedom protest, right? Because they, they somehow equate risk-taking uh, and antisocial behavior to freedom. Well, maybe we're all lucky they stopped driving for three weeks last January and February. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> Thank you all. Good to have you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. You had I was to say that thought. Tim is a former health... No, just, just it's interesting that, of course, this was the, this was the study by three uh, doctors who worked at Sunnybrook. I would have thought they would have had more important things to do than this. Well, so maybe that's something the Ministry of Health ought to be looking at a little bit. Probably just data mining. But thank you, Mark Warner, <laughs> for the cranky pants. Uh, Laura Babcock <laughs> and Tim Hudak.